You're listening to ReachMD, and this is COVID-19 on the front lines. The following episode has been brought to you by the American College of Chest Physicians. Chest is an internationally trusted source for clinical updates and advancing patient care across the landscape of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. With clinician members at the center of this pandemic, we are closely monitoring COVID-19 and regularly making resources available to help you navigate the challenges of this public health crisis. Thank you again, Mangla, for taking the time to talk with us. Um, What I wanted to know is that given that there's a delay in sort of the turnaround of COVID-19 test kits, what is a common presentation you're encountering in the ICU uh, for patients who are COVID-19 positive and at what pace are they deteriorating in respiratory failure? So that's a very good question, and I think this is the most important point because I think our most dangerous time of exposure to the healthcare team is when we don't recognize these patients might have COVID. And that's happened several times in the beginning of this crisis for us that it wasn't recognized or thought of because it was presenting in an elderly patient and a little bit atypically. So what what we've seen commonly is fever and some respiratory complaint, either wheezing or uh, shortness of breath or um, some a cough of some kind. And that's really as specific as it gets. At the point where we are now, we're suspicious of any patient with a fever and any respiratory complaint, and we're testing them for COVID. We are lucky that our health system got ahead of the game and was able to make an in-house test relatively quickly, but our turnaround time is still over 12 hours, which is pretty good in comparison to a lot of the country, but still not perfect. So we are able to test people and get a result back, but we are putting them on isolation precautions if they have any fever or respiratory complaints. In terms of rapid progression, it's actually remarkable how rapidly they deteriorate. They seem to present walking into an urgent care clinic or walking into the ED, and then within 12 hours are intubated and on 100% oxygen. The deterioration is very rapid um, and sort of uh, it's, it's amazing how fast they go down. I see. And so based on that experience, what, what has been your protocol for management of hypoxic respiratory failure? seems that now there's a lot of different options available in terms of non-invasive ventilation, high-flow nasal cannula, early intubation. So what is, how are you following that protocol? And then how are you balancing that with exposure, depending on what respiratory support devices you might use? So we put together a panel of people very early, ICU doctors, respiratory therapists, um, and some uh, protocol people, ethics people, to sort of discuss this topic. I think this is an important topic and one that everyone's going to struggle with. We decided early on that given the rapid deterioration that we're seeing, that many times if you try and use non-invasive or try and use high flow, that uh, you end up with a crash intubation scene, which is much more hazardous to the healthcare team, and it doesn't seem to add any benefit um, to the patients to put them on high flow or on bi-level. So we decided as a health system that we would not use high flow or bi-level on these patients because of the fast deterioration and the fact that we didn't think it was going to help patients and the fact that both of those devices left room for break in the circuit and uh, uh, much more concern of um, of, of viral particles in the space around the patient. Um, for, for both of those reasons, we just decided that, that it, we would go from nasal cannula to non-rebreather to intubation if the patient was deteriorating um, 
and appeared to be a COVID patient. Mm -hmm. And in terms of sort of salvage therapies for refractory ARDS, have you seen any um, improvement in terms of how much P patients need, whether they respond to proning or whether they need inhaled pulmonary vasodilators? So what we have seen is that uh, the patients definitely, it's a very classic pure hypoxemia in the beginning. And, and as they get tired or as other things start to happen, you turn into a respiratory acidosis. But it does seem like it's a hypoxemic picture. Um, they do respond really well to PEEP. Their compliance seems to be relatively normal compared to the normal ARDS patient. Mm -hmm. So it's not a compliance issue. Um, and uh, we have not been using a lot of inhaled nitric oxide because with PEEP and high levels of oxygen, uh, we've been able to sort of uh, recruit lung. Um, but it does seem to be a pretty prolonged course. Uh, we've had patients intubated for almost uh, over a week now. Um, our first group of patients that came in, and it's it's a slow, slow recovery. So uh, it doesn't seem to be multi-organ failure. It, it seems to be uh, single-organ lung uh, initially. And about a week out, uh, we are seeing uh, some renal failure, but not as much as you would normally see in this patient population of severe ARDS. Mm -hmm. And then um, there were some... Uh, experiences shared from the Seattle group suggesting that perhaps initially it was respiratory failure. Then as patients have improvement of their hypoxemia, there were sudden cardiovascular complications, um, uh, perhaps a acquired um, cardiomyopathy. Are you seeing that uh, in your patients? So we have a pretty large cohort of patients. As we have, I'm part of a large hospital network of systems. So we've been able to look at quite a large number of patients uh, pretty rapidly as uh, we get information from all of our sites. So we probably have uh, over 20 patients in our system uh, already um, with, with uh, COVID-confirmed respiratory failure, ARDS picture. So uh, what we've been seeing, we, we are only about a week into it right now. Uh, so we haven't seen that. I read those reports as well. But we are following uh, markers that CRP and we're following IL-6. We're following a bunch of different markers to look for that. Uh, what we were told is that as that week progresses, um, if the CRP starts to climb, that they're at higher risk for higher mortality and cardiomyopathy. It's sort of a second phase viral replication period. So what we have seen in those patients that where the CRP suddenly jumps around day six or seven or eight, that they're definitely doing worse. Uh, we haven't gone far enough out to see the cardiomyopathy yet, but I read those reports as well. So we're on the lookout. We're doing daily ultrasounds on these patients. And then we're going to have to make a decision whether to go for VA ECMO on that patient population or not. We have a patient on VV ECMO, um, and we're following that as well. There wasn't a lot of ECMO used in Italy or Seattle, from what I can tell, um, and they were able to get by with vent management. So It'll be interesting for us to see uh, how ECMO works and if it does benefit this patient population or not. Yeah, and then expanding upon the high IL-6 levels or rapid rise in CRP, I know in China they're testing whether use of anti-IL-6 agents may be useful. Um, have you uh, used that in any of your patient population or have heard of others using it with any response? Yeah, we're, we're about to enroll in a clinical trial that will help us uh, get that easily. Uh, I don't know the answer to that yet. I definitely have heard of other people using it as well. I'm hoping, because uh, right now we're really just doing supportive care. There is a chloroquine shortage. 
mm-hmm. which is the other drug that we were trying to use. Um, and I think the jury's still out on steroids. I've seen a couple of reports of benefit and a couple of reports of not benefit and actual increased mortality. So I don't know the answer on the steroid. We haven't started using it yet in our patient population. Chloroquine is something we wanted to use, but we really think that, that there isn't enough of a national supply of it to be meaningful. Mm-hmm. So we are uh, looking into IL-6 and an IL-2 drug, uh, and we're trying to, we're, we're guessing right now as to what we can do and hoping that one of these things is more promising than we think. Yeah, and, and now that you're sort of a couple weeks ahead of the rest of us in terms of the experience with this, how have you dealt with staffing issues and resource allocation, supply shortages, just because of the sheer number of critically ill patients that you're seeing? This has been a real struggle, and I think this is the lesson uh, and uh, to learn for the future for all of us. I think uh, you can't prepare for this number of patients this quickly. We we definitely double check and triple check our ventilator supplies and our vents and and uh, we are staffing and we were still under guessing on everything. The rate of, of these patients coming in and the level of sickness they have is burning out the staff very quickly. Our doctors are tired, our ACPs are tired, so we are struggling with um, now you know, shutting down ambulatory surgery, uh, shutting down any elective um, visits in the office and elective surgeries as a system, and then trying to pull some of those resources, the ACPs, the physicians that would have been doing some of those things to help backfill um, the physicians who are on the front line. So this is a work in progress. We're early in also, but I think that that is a key to have contingency measures to replace the front line because seven intubated ARDS patients is a very heavy load for any one team to carry for any period of time. And we're learning that very quickly. So I think uh, keeping that in mind, planning uh, um, larger numbers of teams, but preparing also for the fact that anytime there's an exposure, you, you lose staff and that uh, people are going to be cycling in and out of being able to be used and trying to have backup plans for that as well. And then checking on supplies. You know, do you have all the HEPA filters you need? Do you, you, how many negative pressure rooms? Do you want to cohort your patients in one place and try to turn that into a negative pressure area? Or do you want to put them in different places? What do you do with the ones that are uh, COVID pending and you don't know if they have COVID or not? Do you really want to put them with the positive COVID? So there's a lot of, of, of questions that will come up as you're doing your planning. Um, what we have done in our, in our hospital is to have a cohorted COVID unit. Uh, it's an ICU that has single rooms, and we're able to turn the single rooms into negative pressure rooms, but we have filled up that unit. Um, a second unit of negative pressure rooms we're burning through very quickly, and then we're trying to make plans for what happens next week when we have even more patients and trying to understand how we can cohort them safely for the, for the patients and for the staff. So that's something to start thinking about now. That's really helpful um, as people are trying to come up with step-down units, COVID pending units, um, thinking about staffing those and preserving PPE for the staff so that you don't have multiple different providers using up supply as well. Um, Is there anything else that you would recommend that providers should do urgently to prepare for this pandemic? I know that Ideally, we would have prepared, you know, years in advance for this, but is there something that you, now that you're a couple weeks in, that you learned that um, you could maybe give a short little tips and advice for others who are about to see the wave that you've seen? I would say plan for the, for double the number of patients that you're expecting to see. Uh, 
it's just amazing how fast and furiously they're coming in. I would say plan with your ethics team some guidelines around intubating patients and and what's appropriate and what's not and do that ahead of time, like as a multidisciplinary group. Um, Plan what you're going to do with your pregnant patients and plan what you're going to do with your pregnant employees um, and and how are you going to rotate staff in and out of this. Um, There's a list of 50 things that, that you can't think of all of them, but I think that starting to get these things done before you start seeing a large influx of patients uh, is important. What are you going to do with your ambulatory surgery? Um, what are you going to do with the physicians who are positive? And how, how, when do they come back to work? And when you're short of staff, can they work if they're asymptomatic? Um, these are all issues that came up in Italy and Seattle, and now that we're, we are dealing with them as well. So trying to think about some of these things early so that you can um, do your writing and pr- protocols now before you start getting busy with the influx of patients um, that are going to come in. Well, thank you very much. I know you're uh, busy and need to get back to your patients, but we really appreciate all the advice, advice that you've given us today. You're welcome. Good luck to everybody. And I, uh, I, we will definitely come out learning a lot from this. Um, it's, 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 it's a shocking experience. For the latest chest updates, guidelines, expert advice, clinical resources, and more, we invite you to visit our COVID-19 webpage at chestnet.org. Thank you for your service, and please stay well.